It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. I became associated with violence because of the film, and uh, if a couple of nuns were raped in Berwick-on-Tweed, I would always get a telephone call from a newspaper, you know, Mr. Burgess, what do you think of this? Do you not feel in some measure responsible? (laughs) Stanley, they would would never telephone you, Stanley, because you keep out of the way. (laughs) And I've had to deal with this all over the world. Uh, so, in consequence, they've turned me into a kind of expert on violence, which I really know nothing about. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in to Kubrick's Universe. In this episode, we interview Andrew Biswell. Andrew Biswell was always interested in the works of British author Anthony Burgess, going way back to when he was a 15-year-old schoolboy and had first discovered Burgess's novel, A Clockwork Orange. He went on to write his doctoral thesis on Burgess's fiction and journalism. He then wrote a Burgess biography entitled The Real Life of Anthony Burgess, published in 2005. He is also the editor of A Clockwork Orange, The Restored Text, published in 2012. All this eventually led to him being offered the position of the director of the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. He is also Professor of Modern Literature at Manchester Metropolitan University. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in once again to Kubrick's Universe. We have with us today a really cool guest, Andrew Biswell. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Andrew, before we speak specifically about Burgess's novel, A Clockwork Orange, what can you tell us about your initial interest in Anthony Burgess and writing the Burgess biography and your work at the Anthony Burgess Foundation? Well, I came to Burgess as a reader, first of all. When I was at school, I was about 15, 16. I I read A Clockwork Orange, uh, and after that, I read... Burgess's autobiography, the first volume, Little Wilson and Big God, had just been published. And from there, I went on to read other Burgess novels when I could find them. And uh, eventually, after some years, I wrote a PhD dissertation about Burgess as literary journalist. And from there, I um, got a book contract to write his biography, which was published about 15 years ago. And After I'd done that and through university teaching, I was offered the role of the director of the Burgess Foundation in Manchester. Um, And I've been there for about 10 years uh, where I'm overseeing the collected edition of his works. So none of this was planned. Uh, All of this has come about almost, I suppose, semi-accidentally. But I've now been working on Burgess for uh, just over 25 years and and. uh, Beyond that, uh, I've been reading him for much longer than that. Uh, so mm. he's always been my favorite writer, I suppose. And this, of course, would have brought you to writing your biography on Burgess. Can you tell us a bit about how that idea germinated? Yeah, well, my PhD supervisor was a biographer called Jeremy Treglown, and he, he'd suggested at some point um, after I'd been interviewing people for my doctoral research as there hadn't been a biography of Burgess at that point, that the thing I was researching, though I hadn't realized it, it might well be or become a biography. Uh, So although the the doctoral dissertation itself wasn't primarily biographical, uh, before I'd finished it, I'd signed a contract with uh, Picador, a London publisher, to to, to write a biography of Burgess. So I guess the the biographical research emerged out of the the more academic research I've been doing before then. And eventually all of this would have culminated in your uh, work at the Anthony Burgess Foundation. How did you come to that? Well, I I never met Burgess. Um, I was quite young when he died. I got to know Liana, his second wife, who set up the foundation in 2003. 
And uh, Liana did not ask me to write uh, a biography of him, though she read it before it was published. And uh, I think she was reasonably happy. She was very interested uh, to read about the section of his life, uh, the long period of time before she'd met him. And I'd found photographs of him as a child that she'd never seen. So I'd established a friendship with Liana Burgess, and she very generously allowed me to quote from his unpublished letters and his diaries and so forth. Um, and after the biography had been published, I, I was invited to become a trustee of the Burgess Foundation. And then when the founding director, Alan Ruffley, retired, I was asked to, uh, to step in and to take up uh, his role. Mm. And you're still involved with it today? I'm still there. The, the big thing that I've done, uh, which is really a project for the Burgess Centenary in 2017, is to initiate at least the collected edition of his works, which Manchester University Press are publishing. And we're 10 volumes in at the moment. We've got another 23 novels uh, and another 25 nonfiction books to do beyond that. Um, I think three volumes will come out this year. So I think the edition as a whole is going to take about 15 years from now uh, before it's complete. So that's become wow. the, the big all-consuming project. Mm -hmm. uh, understandably, that sounds like a lot of a, a lot of work. You're managing it well, I trust. Well, it's not just down to me. There's a team of international uh, scholars who are dealing with individual volumes. I, I've been editing some of them, but I'm working with each of the volume editors uh, and going over their... Uh, their manuscripts and and working with them um, to annotate uh, and comment on um, the the complete canon of Burgess's work. So eventually, the um, the the project when it's complete will amount to about fifty volumes. Wow, that's a lot. Well, obviously, we're going to ask you about uh, the novel which Kubrick was so intent on adapting uh, into a film. So. What can you tell us about how A Clockwork Orange uh, arrived in Burgess, Burgess's mind? Do you have any idea what his initial conception for that was? Uh, I can't read his mind, but I can read his mm. notebook. And I guess that, that gives us some access to what he was thinking. Uh, originally, I think what he wanted to do was to write a travel book about Russia. That was the original um, idea uh, and that he pitched to Heinemann, his London publisher. And they were very keen on this. They were very interested in the idea uh, of a book about Russia, partly because not many uh, British writers or Western writers had been to communist Russia. And it was, it was starting to open up a bit in the early 1960s. Um, Nikita Khrushchev was in charge. And uh, obviously after the, the Stalin period, Russia had become slightly more permeable to uh, to tourists, as Burgess was. He, he wasn't going there for political reasons, but he was very interested by the idea of Russia, by Russian culture and literature in particular. I mean, he'd read the great 19th century Russian novelists like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who was one of his mm -hmm. favorites. And mm -hmm. he'd learned some Russian before he went there in 1961. So um, I think it was only after he'd arrived in Soviet Russia, that um, the, the the elements that became the Clockwork Orange novel really came together, and in particular, the idea that there would be a, a sort of teenage hooligan at the centre of the novel, because he'd seen uh, such characters both in Britain, where he'd been living, and uh, in Leningrad when he got there. Uh, he saw the, the this. Um, very kind of lawless uh, culture of, of young people, very well-dressed, very violent. And I, I suppose uh, a number of elements then fell into place for him about um, this idea that he'd had already about uh, juvenile delinquents, as they were called at that time, uh, but in the future. And the, the big thing that coalesced was the idea of narrating the novel in a hybrid language that was partly English and partly Russian. What do we know about how he came up with that idea? Um, not very much. I mean, what, what's documented is the process of learning Russian, and mm. uh, in particular through a series of vinyl records that he owned, which survive in the archive of the Burgess Foundation. And um, some of these uh, vinyl 
records that they've got um, short vocabularies on the back. And I think some of them bear quite a close relationship to the, um, the, the minimal sort of two, 300 word Russian vocabulary that he developed for the novel. So I, I think the, the, the language came partly out of his own love of languages. He, he said that learning languages was a hobby and he'd learned uh, Malay, uh, French, German, Spanish. Uh, at the age of 75, he took up learning Japanese, but, but just for wow. fun. And, wow. and he was one of those people to whom language learning came quite easily. Uh, so in 1961, he decided to learn Russian and visit Russia. Uh, and it was important to him to be able to talk to ordinary people that he met while he was there, you know, waiters and taxi drivers and, and people who could tell him what, what was really going on in Russia at that time. Mm. So um, I think it it's partly came out of his, um, his, his great love of learning languages. And that, that's very much at the, the heart of uh, what he liked to do in his spare time. And a lot of that feeds into the, the writing that he did as well. That's really interesting. And I do want to come back to that in a moment, if we may. But um, uh, given all you just told us about Burgess's travels uh, to the Soviet Union, I have to ask, how autobiographical would you say that the novel is to Burgess? I think the elements of autobiography are much less pronounced here than in his other novels. His first published books were about a teacher in colonial Malaya, and, and he'd, he'd done exactly that. He'd been what they called a colonial education officer at schools and colleges in Malaya, right at the end of the British rule uh, in the years leading up to 1957 when Malaya became an independent country. And the novels he wrote next were about somebody who'd been living in the former colonies who'd come back to Britain and about the changes that had happened, in particular the, the youth culture, which had grown up in his absence. He, he left England in 1954 and then came back in 1959. So there was um, you know, a whole set of things that had begun to happen while he'd been away that he didn't really know about. For example, uh, youth culture, music, um, and in particular, the, the Teddy Boys, as they were called. Um, I don't know if, if they existed elsewhere, but they were the, the young people, mostly men. There were Teddy girls as well, um, who would dress up in a kind of Edwardian fashion. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they had a reputation for violence. They very often carried uh, knives and razors and so forth. Knuckle dusters were, were quite commonly seen i think um so coming back to that after he'd been away that's um that's one of the elements that that feeds in he he was he was surprised he was quite intrigued by the um the emergence of this this new youth culture this is the only one of burdish's novels which is narrated by a young person by a teenager and that's quite unusual and by the time he wrote it he was well into his 40s he didn't have any children of his own at this stage, though he'd worked as a school teacher for some years. And I suppose he probably took bits and pieces from the experience of working with, with young people and teenagers. But primarily, he saw this book as a fantasy. He said it was a book about the future. And uh, he doesn't quite describe it as a science fiction novel, though I think it is that, uh, among other things. It, it talks about... Um, talks about science, it talks about technologies which don't yet exist, uh, it talks about the moon landing sometime before that had happened. Hmm. Um, uh, so I would see this novel as, as much less uh, connected to Burdis's own life than any of the books he'd published before um, or after for that matter. Hmm. Um, Andrew, uh, at the risk of asking a sensitive question, and not wanting you to divulge too much or anything you're uncomfortable with. We do have some understanding that um, Burgess had somewhat of a concept regarding uh, an attack, for lack of a better word, that had taken place involving his wife at the time. Is there anything, you, any light you can shed on that, how that came to bear when he wrote the novel? Well, it's true that in 1944, uh, during the Second World War, um, Burgess's first wife, Lynn, was attacked, uh, and it was it was a robbery. It was not a sexual attack, 
uh, but she was very badly beaten up um, by a, a gang of, we don't know who they were, there were some men who set upon her during the blackout in London. And um, Burgess, after she died, which is sometime after he'd published the novel, he, he did make the connection between the, the attack on his wife. Of course, there's a writer in the book who's also writing a, uh, a nonfiction book called A Clockwork Orange, whose wife uh, is also attacked, though, though she is raped. Um, so this is different from the attack on Burgess's own wife. And it, it's, yes, it's true that that happened. I'd be reluctant to draw a, a kind of one-to-one equivalence because the circumstances are different. It, it would be quite surprising if um, Burgess felt he was kind of working out some unfinished mental business to do with his, his, the attack on his wife by having the, the woman raped in the novel. So it, it's something that I'm a bit reluctant to, um, I'd be reluctant to say, yes, this episode in the novel refers to this thing that had happened in his life, because I don't think it's as straightforward as that, though that there had definitely been uh, a trauma uh, affecting the first wife. Um, and and some of that may, you know, in a, a kind of, um, oblique way be reflected in the novel. It also talks about a uh, private happening in your, in your life, something, mental biography involved. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, my first wife, who is now dead, uh, was uh, attacked uh, during the war in London, in the blackout, by uh, four American soldiers who were in fact deserters. It wasn't a sexual attack, it was uh, an attack for robbery, but uh, the result of this attack was that she um, had a miscarriage. She lost the child she was carrying at the time, and her health deteriorated, and I suppose her eventual death was uh, initiated by this act of violence. I think it's the job of the artist, especially the novelist, to take events like that from his own life, or from the lives of those near to him, and to purge them, to catheterize the pain, the anguish, uh, in a work of art. That is one of the jobs of art. Uh, I think it was D.H. Lawrence who said, we shed our sicknesses in works of art. In this sense, the part of the novel, uh, part of the film, in which a character is writing a book, and the book is called, in my own book, A Clockwork Orange, uh, was an attempt to put myself in the novel, to put myself as a writer who is a subject, uh, and his wife also, uh, to the uh, depredations, to the, to the violence of, um, of wild youth. And by that means, to clear it out of my system so that I didn't have to think about it anymore. Uh, I think that um, the therapeutic virtue of this book is probably its greatest virtue, as far as I'm concerned. Its artistic virtue is rather, is rather less. What can you tell us about how Burgess came up with the idea of using aversion therapy in the novel? I think this is something that was simply in the air in the late 1950s, the early 1960s, the idea that people could be cured of their vices by subjecting them to aversion therapy. And certainly it was very widely discussed around that time. Um, Aldous Huxley, in his book, Brave New World Revisited, a nonfiction book, which is a response to his earlier novel, he devotes quite a lot of space to talking about um, hypnotism and hypnopedia and um, uh, other, uh, other therapies, including aversion therapy, which he was quite against. And the other writer that um, Huxley mentions is B.F. Skinner, uh, who was not an aversion therapist. He, Skinner believed in positive reinforcement. Uh, but I think certainly among psychologists at the time, we're talking about late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, there were experiments going on, particularly, for example, to cure people from their alcoholism. Um, aversion therapy was fairly widely used. Uh, and also, unfortunately, as we know, uh, there were attempts to uh, cure, in inverted commas, uh, people of their homosexuality as well, uh, and of those feelings, um, which uh, all of which I think does feed into the, the general mix of the novel. Now, what happens with aversion therapy in A Clockwork Orange, of course, is that, that Alex is conditioned to be non-violent. Um, and this then sets up the 
debate or discussion within the novel about free will. And the, the character in the text who really speaks for Burdis is the prison chaplain who has mm -hmm. the famous line, if a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. Of course. Uh, and and that's, that's foregrounded in the novel, but I think is even more prominent in, in the film, uh, that set of arguments about free will. In a sense, this uh, book uh, does state what I am always trying to state in my work, that uh, man is free, that man was granted the gift of free will, and he can choose. And if he decides to choose evil, rather than to choose good, this is in his nature. And it is not the task of the state to kill this capacity for choice. In effect, the book, Clockwork uh, Orange, says that it is better for a man to do evil with his own free will than for the state to turn him into a machine which can only do good. Now, in this sense, I, I've been uh, using the theme of free will in novel after novel, but uh, the book is different from the others in that it uses a, a specially contrived language and also in that it makes far more explicit uh, use of violence than in any other of my works. I don't like violence. I don't like presenting violence in my books. I don't like even presenting the act of sex in my books. Uh, I'm naturally timid about these things. But in writing A Clockwork Orange, I uh, was so appalled at the prospect before us in the late 1950s, the prospect of the state taking over more and more of the area of free choice that I felt I had to write the book. Do you think, Andrew, that uh, there's any correlation between uh, the discussion of choice that um, Burgess brings up and perhaps anything to do with his own uh, background growing up in religion? Uh, I think that's that's right. Um, I'm sure there's something in that. And although Burgess had walked out of his church at the age of 16 in 1933 and uh, pretty much never went back, uh, I think the education he'd received from his Catholic school and from his family, uh, all of whom were, were not just Catholics, but some of them were, were bishops and archbishops, um, and that early training really uh, affected the way that he thought about the world. And uh, one thing that he, as a secular person, he took away from his Catholic education was the idea uh, of the primacy of free will uh, mm. and, and the, the importance of, of making moral choices, of, of um, positively choosing either good or evil, I suppose, uh, as against having that choice taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Andrew, what could you tell us about Burgess's use of NADSAT in the novel as a new language? I think this is one of the ironies of A Clockwork Orange, is that although it's a book about free will and choice, uh, one of the effects of the novel as you read it is that without your willing it necessarily, you get to learn a new language. Um, it, it does act as, as a kind of, uh, not a version therapy, but as a, a subliminal conditioning instrument whereby mm. through reading the book you are you are um it requires you you're forced to learn uh take on the these elements of, of the nadsat language now russian's the most important element there but there are others as well uh, there's a lot of uh english rhyming slang especially london slang the cockney rhyming slang um and there are elements of elizabethan english there and there's some Romany words as well. Uh, for example, the, the, the rosas for the police, that, that's an old gypsy word. It's a Romany word, um, a slang word for, for the police. So all kinds of um, aspects and elements from Burgess's thinking about language have, have fused together to form this thing um, that we call Nadset. Though I think it would be a mistake to argue that Nadset was purely the Russian words, because there's so much more beyond that, which are uh, which is characteristic of the way Alex and the Drugs communicate with each other. Uh, the book was written um, in about, uh, it was finished in 1960, but there was great difficulty in getting it published. In those days, people were very squeamish. In 1960, in England, uh, only then, for the first time, was it possible to buy a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover in its unabridged form. It's only just over 10 years ago, but the climate has changed so 
fundamentally in 10 years, that it's very hard for us now to believe what life was really like in 1960s. It does seem that Burgess's editor at the time had described the book as one of the worst publishing problems imaginable, of course, with the inclusion of NADSAT. Do we know how that problem was overcome? Well, I think the problem was not the language itself. They were they were okay with that. They, they thought that people would either um, get into it or, or not. And um, the same report you quote from, it, it ends by saying either this book will be a a great success or a complete flop, but nothing mm. in between. Uh, mm. In fact, it was both of those things. It was a flop first, and then it found success later on mm. uh, in commercial terms. Um, what they meant when they talked about one of the worst publishing problems imaginable was uh, obscenity. This was very shortly after the Lady Chatterley case. D.H. Lawrence's novel had been mm -hmm. put on trial in England uh, and found not guilty of obscenity in 1960. So uh, the editorial conversation was happening within a few months of that, that trial and that verdict. And the bigger history of Heinemann, his publisher, was that um, they had been um, found guilty of obscenity for various other things they'd published through the 50s. And that had left them quite nervous about publishing books which might be thought to be obscene um, mm -hmm. under the law. So when um, Nabokov's Lolita came in, uh, they were terrified and they published all of Nabokov's previous novels and they wouldn't touch it. So they, they rejected Lolita and it went to Weidenfeld, uh, another London publisher who uh, made good money out of it. And then um, all of Nabokov's subsequent novels were published, not by Heinemann, but by Weidenfeld. So um, I think the chairman of the board who'd been asked to give evidence in one of these obscenity trials was very nervous. Uh, about being uh, dragged back into court. And the stakes were quite high because as a publisher in the 60s, uh, even after the Chatterley case, if you were convicted of obscenity, you could be sent to prison. So um, there was obviously very vigorous internal debate about the novel. And this has come out of the publisher's archive. I don't think Burgess knew that they were having this conversation in a different part of the forest. Uh, how they overcame it was, uh, I think, a number of people read it and they judged that the risk was quite low, partly because of the language. If NADSAT had not been there, I think they, they might not have published it. Mm. But the judgment they arrived at was that the, the violence and the sexual violence that they were very worried about was sufficiently um, you know, shrouded in linguistic play and, and fireworks and invented languages that they concluded it was probably safe to, to publish a book, which, um, because it was so literary, mm. it, it was uh, unlikely to be accused of um, corrupting loads of young people. And in fact, that, that all came true in the sense that they, they, they didn't print many copies. Uh, they printed about 5,000 copies, and half of them were still in their warehouse, unsold five years later. As more people in the firm read the book, they became more excited about it. And eventually uh, the head of publicity asked Burgess to write a short NADSAT glossary. And, and his idea was to get the sales reps to go into the bookshops. Um, he wanted the sales reps to go into the bookstores speaking fluent NADSAT to the booksellers and thereby persuading them to, to stop the novel, uh, which is a great idea, but I, I, don't think it, I don't think it worked. It's a great idea though, I agree. Yeah, I, I think people were people within the, the publishing house were, uh, you know, as more people read it, they became, uh, I think, you know, various light bulbs went on and people could see there was something very strange and very original here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they also said that Burgess had a marketing problem because all of his previous novels had been comic novels. And this one, it, it wasn't that or not mm -hmm. primarily that. And they were quite nervous about how it might go down with his existing readers. It's, that stands to reason, yes, you know, an untested, untried new direction for someone established with something else they're associated with can always pose a marketing challenge, I can assume. Um, and then speaking of that, you know, we did end up with different English language versions of the novel, uh, one between English and, of course, the American version. What, what can you tell us about that? 
Well, I'm afraid this is Burgess's fault. And late in life, he 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 wrote about this and talked about this. And the the version he gives uh, isn't strictly accurate uh, to what happened. Um, and I mean, going back through the publisher's files and looking at the manuscript, I think it tells a slightly different story. Uh, he did have two different endings in the manuscript. Um, and the the ending we know from the film is obviously Alex being recovering from the conditioning and going back to crime. And in the novel, there's this 21st chapter in the British version of the novel, I should say, whereby Alex, um, he goes back to crime and then he has his doubts and he splits off from the droogs and he meets one of his uh, original droogs in a cafe uh, and they talk about maturity and then he decides that he's going to um, stop all this violence and he's going to find a woman and start a family. And and the ending is is almost kind of redemptive, I suppose. It's There's a progression beyond the, the cycle of violence that the uh, American version of the novel describes. Now, the reason why there are two different versions is because Burgess, at the end of chapter 20, wrote in his manuscript, should we end here, question mark, an optional epilogue follows. And when he submitted the manuscript to his London and New York publishers, uh, they arrived at different answers to his own question. And so the, uh, the shorter American version was published absolutely with his consent because he'd, he'd, he'd asked the question. He genuinely didn't know which ending was right. And when he came to write his own adaptation um, for the screenplay, he follows the short version in the 1960s. So I, I think um, it's pretty clear that at different times, Burgess liked one ending or the other ending. And late in life, he decided that the, uh, the British version of the novel was the true one. But that wasn't what he was saying in the early 1960s when he was thinking about publishing the novel. Mm. So there, there are complications here, and, and most of them are created by Burgess himself. And then the novel was made into a film. Mm. Did, it, did, you, did it make a lot of money for you? No, I didn't make um, any money at all. I just uh, sold the book uh, rather early on in my career. Ever since the book was written from about uh, 1962 on, uh, there have been attempts to make a film out of it. But of course in 1962, 1963, the, um, the climate wasn't yet ready for films of this kind. We weren't ready in 1962 uh, to uh, see on the films explicit violence, explicit rape, even explicit nudity. So um, the original attempt to make a film of A Clockwork Orange was uh, an attempt uh, at a very low financial level. The idea was to make a kind of underground film uh, with the Rolling Stones, a very popular uh, singing group at that time, and I think still in it, playing the four leading parts. Uh, the film would not make much money, the film would not be uh, shown publicly, probably only in film clubs, and in consequence I accepted uh, $500 for the, uh, for the rights of the book. Naturally, uh, the book was now in the hands of operators who were able to sell it eventually for $500,000. Uh, so um, the money gained from the book has been gained by those who didn't write it. For my own part, I, I, I don't worry, because it is the nature of the serious artist not to make money. Artists don't make money, they get their pleasures other ways. It does uh, lead us into a question about the several attempts that were made to turn the novel into a film before Kubrick eventually did it. Um, as we, as far as we understand, filmmakers such as Andy Warhol, Nicholas Rogue, and Ken Russell have all been named as being involved or attached in some way or another prior to Kubrick's film. What can you tell us about those? Well, I should say just uh, in relation to the ending that, that Kubrick had read both versions of the novel uh, and he he hated the, the British version. He never gave any serious consideration to using that, he said. Um, but long before Kubrick entered the scene in, I think, 1965, Andy Warhol and uh, rather his long-term collaborator, Ronald Tarvel, who was one of the factory people, wanted to make a film um, based around A Clockwork Orange. They didn't bother acquiring the rights. There was no contact with Burgess or his agents. They just went ahead and, and did it. It's a very low budget film, final. And um, there was a DVD released in Italy some years ago um, 
and it pops up from time to time on YouTube and is then often taken down again. Um, of course. It, yeah. But it, I, I've watched it. It's, uh, it's described even by the people who like it as, as 60 minutes of torture. Um, and it's, uh, it's shot uh, very cheaply. Uh, there are two continuous takes. Um, very few of the actors had bothered to learn their lines. It, it begins, you know, th there's a vague connection to the novel. There are street gangs and so forth. And then by the end of it, they've, they've kind of given up and they're just having fun. Everyone's mm. smoking very heavily. Don't know what they're smoking. And then somebody is force fed amyl nitrate, uh, apparently. Um, and, and the, one of the characters, um, I'm told, or I discover from a Warhol biography, had simply turned up that day and wasn't supposed to be in the film at all. And she was told, just, just sit there and, and smoke cigarettes and look beautiful. And that's what she did. So she doesn't <laughs> speak at all. She's just kind of there. Um, so there's this film, which is it's kind of connected to A Clockwork Orange, but not very closely. And it's about juvenile delinquents. And it, I think it was only ever screened once as a film. And after that, the Velvet Underground used it as a sort of back projection when, when they were playing around uh, university campuses in New York uh, in the mid-60s. So it, it's very much an underground film. And um, as far as I can see, that there's, there's only one you know, kind of documented um, screening of the film as a film. And after that, it becomes this sort of cultural object that, that's used for other purposes. Mm. Now, the, the Nicholas Rugg... Um, project was much more serious um, because what happens in 1966 is that um, the film rights were sold via Burgess's London agent to um, two film producers who went on to work with uh, Nicholas Rugg on the film Walkabout. Nicholas Rugg had not yet made Walkabout when he was uh, involved in the possibility of uh, directing A Clockwork Orange. Right. And he's mentioned in Letters to Burgess from his agent in the late 60s. And I think he must have passed on it ultimately, but I'm sure he'd read it. Uh, the other person who was interested uh, or involved rather in writing a script is Christopher Isherwood, um, the film the idea of a Clockwork Orange film shows up in his diary. He was paid to write a Clockwork Orange screenplay in about 1967, I think, so uh, after the rights had been sold. I don't know what, uh, what happened to it, how involved he was, whether he ever um, wrote a complete screenplay. But clearly, this property was being touted around. Uh, and eventually, um, it landed with Warner Brothers and with Kubrick, but not before a number of other people had been involved. Ken Russell, I think, was uh, was not in the frame as far as I know. Though, I mean, oddly enough, he had lots of things in common with Burgess, especially his interest in, in music and the history of uh, English composers. And if he had been asked to direct it, then he might have made quite a good job. The other thing he has in common with Burgess is D.H. Lawrence. Um, Burgess wrote a book about Lawrence, a uh, biography of Lawrence, and, and revered him as one of the, the greatest 20th century novelists. And Russell, of course, uh, filmed both Women in Love and later on The Rainbow. And I think Lady Chatterley as well, uh, towards the end of his career. So um, though Burgess sometimes said unkind things about The Devils, which was not his favorite film, um, <laughs> I can't help thinking that, that um, Russell might have made quite a good job of directing a clockwork orange we'll never know of course it's an interesting thought experiment if especially if one has seen um you know the bulk of work that ken russell put out what we know about terry southern <clears throat> who we, we know had co-written dr strangelove with kubrick in the early 60s and then of course he adapted the book of a clockwork orange into a screenplay what can you tell us about that Okay, well, Terry Southern and um, Michael Cooper was his collaborator. And between them, they, they did uh, come up with a Clockwork Orange screenplay, which survives in the archive. And there's a copy in the Kubrick archive and another copy in the Burgess archive. Um, they submitted it to the British Board of Film Censorship, as it was then called, uh, who rejected it, who said they weren't prepared uh, for this movie to go into production in 1967. I think because of the elements of, of violence and the sexual violence 
Um, so it kind of hit the buffers. I mean, they, they did not own the rights, I think, but um, they were obviously sufficiently close to the people who did that they, they thought there was a possibility of um, exploiting the material. The, the one thing it shows us, though sadly the film was not made, is that uh, A Clockwork Orange, though it didn't sell very well, it was gaining a kind of um, kudos and reputation in the underground. And mm. certainly when it was first published in the United States, William Burroughs gave a quote for the book, um, and he was obviously very excited about it. So he's Roald Dahl, actually, um, though his his connection with it is is uh, slightly puzzling, I suppose. Uh, but but Southern, I think, is solidly part of the counterculture by 1967. Mm. Um, and clearly he and Michael Cooper, I don't know who the, the, the sort of leading partner on the screenplay was, uh, but they they put it to the uh, the Board of Censorship, who needed to approve every script before it could go into production in Britain. Uh, and according to the documentation there, they rejected it. And of course, in 1969, Burgess had written his own adaptation as a film script. What can you tell us about that and any ideas why it was not used by Kubrick? Uh, the Burgess script is, um, it's not so much an adaptation, it's a kind of reworking of the novel. It contains quite a lot of material that's not in the book. Mm. And it was written for the producers who'd acquired the uh, the film rights. And I think it must have been part of their pitch to Kubrick and Warner Brothers. Uh, the reason why it wasn't used, uh, I don't know. I mean, Kubrick had certainly read it. There's a copy of that script in the Kubrick archive, and he's annotated it, and he's marked up certain scenes that he's obviously interested in. Uh, and then after a certain point, he decided it wasn't something he could use, and he decided that he was going to write the script himself. Um, and there's a memo in the Kubrick archive where, where he says uh, or tries to explain why his script bears no relation to any pre-existing script, uh, which I think is broadly true, though the thing it bears the closest relationship to is Burgess's own novel in the sense that most of the dialogue from uh, the book, um, should I say most of the dialogue from from the film has its origin in the book uh, is, is taken directly. And I think he trusted the book in that mm. way. He, he admired it and he, he saw that there was something that he could, you know, by judicious cutting reduce to its essence. He does add a few scenes to the novel um, controversially that the whole sequence where Alex enters the prison as, and is inducted into it. And the, uh, that the chief warder, takes a torch and, and looks up his ass while asking him <laughs> if he's gay, for example. No, none of this is in, in the novel. Um, and then he cuts certain other things. The, the second murder, um, the, the murder in the prison, is not in, in the film. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose to some extent it's true of Burgess's script and it's true of Kubrick's script that they're both revisiting the novel and, and they're... They're, they're altering it, they're remaking it in, in mm. the act of trying to turn it into film. And now during that period of conception you just described, as well as the film's production and the release of it, um, it seems that Burgess only had very limited contact with Stanley Kubrick. Can you tell us any more details about that and why? Well, Burgess was living, uh, he was living abroad. He'd gone to live in Malta and then no sooner had he arrived in Malta than he was living in uh, the United States on a series of uh, visiting uh, professorships at various uh, universities at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and then at Princeton. Um, and he was on the move a lot. Then he went to Australia with the British Council and New Zealand and Singapore. Um, so at the period when the film was being produced, he was, uh, he was on the move constantly. So he didn't meet Kubrick until after the uh after the, the the film had been edited but before it was released he he with his wife he went to london and his agent deborah rogers was also there and that was their first meeting they had a private screening of the film in london um i i think the contacts maybe Burtis had had a single telephone call with kubrick and and they 
they'd not discussed the film. They just exchanged pleasantries. So mm. most of the contact came through uh, through Deborah Rogers, Burgess's agent, and that that is documented. Um, for example, the question of the the various endings is briefly discussed. Kubrick wanted to know which ending Burgess regarded as definitive. Uh, unfortunately, his reply to that letter doesn't survive, so we don't know what his answer was. Hmm. Um, but there, there was, I suppose, that um, I would say the discussion they'd had was largely structural, and and they discussed specific points like who who was the author of the song that the um, the the drunk, you know, the the tramp uh, right, sings right. at the beginning of the song because it, they wanted a clear copyright in the song. And Burgess said, oh, I, I wrote it, so that was fine. Um, but they, I would not say that Burgess had any significant input into the, the, the scripting of the film or the production of the film. He saw it when it was complete. Hmm. And he did so apparently in private with Kubrick um, at a private screening. And this was done, as you say, after the uh, editing was finished. But... He then went on uh, a, a talk show tour, if you will, with Malcolm McDowell all throughout the USA, and they appeared on uh, numerous TV shows. What can you tell us about how that idea came about and how it went? I don't know where the idea came from um, other than, well, Mike Kaplan, who I think you've interviewed as a guest on your podcast, uh, he wanted the film... Uh, to be discussed. And he was quite surprised. Um, in fact, everyone who worked in the press team at Warner Brothers was surprised by the amount of controversy that was generated uh, as soon as it had been screened in public for the first time, the press screenings in December 1971. And some of that response was quite hostile. So uh, as I understand it, the idea of putting Malcolm McDowell and Burgess on the road probably came from Kaplan or, or somebody else um, on the Warner's um, press and publicity department. Uh, and I think it was quite a success. They spent uh, a few weeks in New York and Burtis also appeared on the firing line with William F. Buckley uh, without McDowell and answered questions about youth culture and young people, which of course he knew very little about. I mean, he was nearly 50 by this point and uh, uh, didn't really know many young people. Uh, other than his son, who was about four years old. Um, I, I think the press tour was fairly successful. And beyond that, I mean, there were magazine interviews. The Publishers Weekly spoke to him. Yeah, I, I think uh, Warner's got what they wanted out of the, the publicity tour. And um, certainly McDowell and Burgess put up a very robust defense of the film uh, on the grounds that, that the film itself defended the principle of free will against the tyranny of the state. And, and they were very keen to articulate that, that message uh, as clearly as they could. Do you feel that it was successful? Yeah, well, I think the publicity happened on a number of fronts because Kubrick did magazine interviews. There was a very good one with Philip Strick and uh, Penelope Houston for Sight and Sound magazine. I think that interview was syndicated elsewhere. Um, and uh, Kubrick, I think, was very stung by some of what was said about him in the New York Times, and he he replied unusually. He wrote a very long essay for the New York Times that was published there uh, in response to some of his his critics, and in particular the suggestion that this was a fascist film uh, and that he was an illiberal person standing mm -hmm. behind it. Um, I, I think uh, Burgess was also quite well known before the film on television. I mean, when his Shakespeare book came out in 1970 and when his novel MF came out, he went on Dick Cavett's show, which uh, was quite quite widely watched, I think. It was um, very popular. Yeah, so he was already a regular. People knew that he he was good fun on TV. And, and he, he wouldn't be coarse, but he would be... Um, I'm not quite sure what the word is. He, he, he would be naughty and he would be quite funny. Mm -hmm. And I can remember him doing this when I was growing up. He, he would go on TV in Britain and, and he would tell dirty jokes and, um, but, but not, not sweary jokes. You know, there, there was something very bawdy about him that audiences mm. quite liked. 
Uh, and he would talk about sex and he would tell you how many times a day or a week he had sex with his wife and, you know, the, these, these kinds of things. So, I mean, he, his behavior was not, you know, what you'd expect of a literary writer. I don't think Nabokov or, or Muriel Spark or John Updike um, cut quite the same figures when they appeared on television. They were rather probably more, not. They, they were more sedate <laughs> and austere, but I, I yes, think, yes. I mean, uh, Burgess, who, who's, his mother and his father both worked in the music halls, which is how they met. And I think that that kind of rough and ready comedy that, that they'd grown up with and he'd grown up with, um, that some of that was uh, visible um, when he, he went on television. Uh, and this, and of course, always makes for compelling television. Yeah, I think Malcolm McDowell, when he talks about Burgess, he, he really liked him. I mean, he'd not met him before. But they, they they live very closely together. They're staying in the same hotel, probably having their meals together, and and you know going on TV, doing the press tour, and uh, and McDowell really enjoyed his company. He he thought he was a a serious character, mm. uh, and Burdis obviously liked McDowell. That comes through in his writing about him in his autobiography. I had the most wonderful week with him because he was one of the greatest raconteurs I've ever heard. And in fact, it was a, a lot of fun. He, we were there supposedly to go and pick up awards from the New York film critics. And Anthony was picking up on behalf of Stanley Kubrick. Anthony uh, Burgess stood up and said, Well, um, I have been sent by God, uh, Stanley Kubrick, to pick up this award. And of course, everybody just fell about, you know. Here's an extract from a speech given by Burgess while picking up awards on behalf of Kubrick for Best Director and Best Film at the New York Critics Circle Awards Ceremony in January 1972 at the legendary Sardi's Restaurant in New York. If I, if I continue just for a second with a blasphemy, I suppose my, my own relationship with uh, this film is that of primal creator with uh, ultimate interpreter, uh, which finds its most megalomaniacal, if I can use the term, or a most mythical metaphor in, say, the relationship between God and Cecil B. DeMille, <laughs> or it may be the other way round. God wrote a marvellous book, a bestseller, a marvellous title called The Old Testament. I don't think he's ever received a penny in royalties for it. But God is a spirit, and I'm merely a consumer of spirits. In my case, with regard to this masterpiece, which I think will make a lot of money, is somewhat different. As far as Kubrick's concerned, I knew little about him. Uh, I was told over the telephone that uh, Stanley Kubrick wished to make my book A Clockwork Orange into a film and I would get no money from it. Well, I said, no, I know this already. You didn't tell me. <laughs> but he said, um, would you rather he made it and get no money or somebody else make it? Well, I had a, a, a vision of Ken Russell making it. <laughs> So I said I was prepared to pay Krubik to make the film. <laughs> Turned out to my surprise that Kubrick did not actually need the money at the time. Uh, Kubrick uh, reappeared in my life, or very nearly. Uh, he hadn't really appeared at all, had he? He'd appeared, he reappeared by name very nearly when I was uh, in Australia and uh, I was summoned to London to see Kubrick because of two lines in the book. He wasn't sure whether he was a copyright or not, or whether they were quotations from an existing song, whether I'd actually written them. So I rushed from Australia to New Zealand, to Hawaii, San Francisco, New York, and eventually landed up in London and uh, appeared for lunch at that old English tavern called Trader Vicks. <laughs> After a couple of old English noggins of my tie, uh, Kubrick did not turn up. <laughs> then Kubrick, to use the Australian vernacular, nearly gave birth to a set of diesel engines when he, uh, when he discovered that the British edition of the book was different from the American edition. Indeed, the American edition, if anybody's interested, has 20 chapters, whereas the British edition has 21. Uh, there's a cartoon in the, the British Daily Express which shows 
man and a woman leaving the cinema, having seen Kubrick's film, saying, George, dear, I do hope they don't make son of Clockwork Orange. <laughs> well, this is no joke, because uh, chapter 21, in the British edition, is precisely that. It's uh, the count of the son of Clockwork Orange, and anybody who wishes to make this movie as a follow-up is welcome to see me afterwards. <laughs> Well, but, uh, as you know, uh, he doesn't travel. God, I mean, Kubrick doesn't travel. <laughs> and uh, he is stuck there in Boreham Wood, about two miles from Pinewood Studios outside London. And if I may use again a dramatic allusion, uh, there's no question of Boreham Wood coming to dance in aim, dances here. So all I can say now is that uh, I know your little droogie, your little malinky droogie back there in Boreham Wood, will smack down to his very kishkas or even his yardles and I place this horror show padarok into his rukas. <laughs> on his behalf, on his behalf, ladies and gentlemen, I say thank you for your generosity. On his and my behalf, I say thank you for your perspicacity. And on my own behalf, my fellow writers, I say thank you for your hospitality. Well, if I may jump from biography, from autobiography rather, to biography, um, Vincent Labruto, of course, wrote perhaps the definitive Kubrick biography. And in it, he did state that uh, following a New York press tour, Burgess had headed back to Rome, but stopped off in London first to deliver the best film and best director plaques uh, from the New York film critics to Kubrick. And it was during this stopover he appeared on a BBC radio program where A Clockwork Orange was bitterly attacked. What can you tell us about that interview? Yeah, I, I think um, Labruta's chronology is out a bit here. I, I think these things happened about two years apart. The the um, the 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 plaques were awarded in 1971 and the the radio program he's thinking about was 1973 but uh Burdis got attacked all the time and he was quite used to this um i've not heard the program i'm not sure it survives in the archive but he gives an account of it in his autobiography and um what he says is that the host was jimmy savile who was a he was a Radio One DJ um, who was subsequently unmasked as one of the worst sex offenders uh, in in the history of of uh, everything. Yes. Uh, and at the time, this wasn't known about, and th this was a, a radio program for young people, and most of the audience were young people as well. And what Birdie says that the um, is that the the discussion of the film was rigged in that um, at the end of the show. Uh, after they they talked about free will and and you know moral responsibility and everything else, Savile asked a man in the audience to stand up, uh, and this man said he'd been in prison. And Savile said, "Was your the, the crimes you you committed was your life as a criminal uh, inspired by your your reading of violent books and your watching of violent films?" And and the man said, "Oh yes, it was." And then the program ended. Uh, and Burgess said that he he wanted to to commit violence against Jimmy Savile for having sure. you know <laughs> crudely rigged the debate in that way. Right, right. Um, so I think that that must be the episode that um, that that Burgess refers to, and that Vincent Labruto um, mentions as well. But whether this is what actually happened, I don't know because I, I'm I'm not sure the tape of the program has survived. But that that mm. is the account Burgess gave of it. Hmm. Now. One has to ask, given the um, inability to ex extract, if you will, Kubrick's film from Anthony Burgess, the author, Anthony Burgess, as a name which only grew in popularity after the release of Kubrick's film, wondering if you have a take on how responsible you might say Kubrick was for making Anthony Burgess a perhaps more well-known literary figure? I think this is quite complicated. And I think, um, as we've said already, Burgess was quite well-known before the Kubrick film came out. 
in the mm -hmm. sense that his work was uh, been published in America. It was translated uh, into quite a number of, of languages around the world. And he'd also established um, himself as, as a performer on TV and radio. And as early as 1963, his, um, the film rights were being sold in his novels and quite serious people were, were wanting to uh, adapt his work. So it would be wrong to say that he owed everything to Kubrick. Of course. Um, and, you know, long before um, Kubrick's involvement, Burgess was, he was hired by Hollywood to write a musical uh, about the life of Shakespeare. And he was to write both the, the, the script and the music. And, and he did all of these things. They're the film, uh, which was titled um, either Will or The Bawdy Bard, the, the title kept changing, was sadly never produced. But the, the, the work he did survives, uh, and that's all on the level. Um, so I, I want to make a case for Burgess as a, a kind of autonomous creative person who already established himself quite well before 1971, 72, when the film went on general release. With all of that having been said, um, I think the success of the film internationally and also its notoriety because it was banned in places like Spain and Brazil and South Africa, and it was banned in the Republic of Ireland until uh, the year 2000. It mm -hmm. couldn't be seen there at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this did Burgess no harm. Um, and, uh, in in many ways, it did him a lot of good. It it, um, it it spread his reputation, and it got more translations of his novels. And he was invited to um, become a judge at the Cannes Film Festival in 1975. And he wasn't getting that kind of work uh, before the Clockwork Orange film emerged. He also became incredibly bankable as a screenwriter. Um, quite mysteriously, because he, he'd had no involvement in, in writing the, the screenplay for A Clockwork Orange. Mm. But he got a lot of film work uh, on the back of um, uh, Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Uh, and then, ultimately, I mean, scrolling ahead a number of years, he, he then made another adaptation of his own novel as a stage musical, which played in London um, and has been performed all over the world. And, and this year, for example... Um, there are going to be productions of that in, in Moscow and Mexico and Denmark and Austria and Germany. And, and there's going to be a production in London as well. So um, I think... So there really is yeah. no such thing as bad press. <laughs> no, in, in his case, there isn't. Um, right, right, right. And I, I, had a very complicated relationship with the Clockwork Orange, especially late in life. And if he was bringing out a new novel... He would um, he would be interviewed and so forth, and any journalist who was interviewing him would be told by his publisher, "You can't mention a Clockwork Orange. Just just don't bring it up. He doesn't want to talk about it." And that became mm. a condition of the interviews. And then they would go in, and he would mention it. He would he would start to talk about how he'd made no money out of a Clockwork Orange and how much he hated the Kubrick film or mm. whatever it was, and and so it was something he couldn't quite leave alone. Uh, mm. And it did come into his um, his later writing, you know, when he was writing for the stage, and then he wrote his autobiography. And whenever a new edition of the book or the stage play came out, he would write another introduction or he would write articles for the New York Times or the London Observer. So I think, um, in a sense, his fate became entwined and intermingled with Kubrick's. And he felt, some days he felt okay about that, and some days he felt resentful about that. Mm. Um, and his biggest sadness was that people weren't reading his other novels um, or talking about them. The book is didactic. The book teaches, preaches a little too much. And I don't think it's the job of the artist to do that. The job of the artist is merely to show. But the book became popular precisely because it combined the didactic and what seems to many people to be the pornographic, pornography of violence and the teachy, preachy quality. When you get these two together, uh, you'll normally produce a book that can become a bestseller. The book didn't become a bestseller, not for many, many years. But inevitably, it has become my most popular book, and this I resent. Out of the 30-odd books I've written, this is often the only book of mine that is known. This I resent very much. And he said that quite early on, that there was a press release he wrote for Warners uh, where he said... Um, he would like one of his other novels to be attacked or at least read. 
<laughs> That's a clever writer speaking there. Well, it seems like he either way, he felt like he had to lean into it uh, as it was yeah, impossible to uh, extricate himself from the success and the uh, saturation it ultimately receives in pop culture. Yeah, and I think there are worse directors to be associated with than Kubrick. What, what's very curious is that, that Kubrick, despite I Burgess went around talking about him for, for many years, for, I don't know, sort of 20 years after the, the film had been released, uh, Kubrick said almost nothing in public about Burgess, uh, except when Eyes Wide Shut was released, um, there was an interview he gave to a newspaper in Canada, and they asked him about Burgess, and Kubrick said... I wish he'd stop bitching about me. He said, I admire him as an artist and all of that. Why, why does he keep doing this? And, and that's it. That's the only recorded remark uh, that we have uh, of Kubrick on Burgess. The Irwell edition of the works of Anthony Burgess is published by Manchester University Press. You can find out more about the life and work of Anthony Burgess at the website of the Burgess Foundation, www.anthonyburgess.org. As we announced last episode, we are asking you, our listeners, to tell us in under five minutes what you think of Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, when you first saw it, what impact it had on you, and just anything that you would like to share about the film. You might not like it, but we still want to hear. Just record your voice into the voice recorder on your phone and send it to us at Kubrick's Universe. You'll find our email address in the show notes at Kubrick's Universe on Facebook, or just search Kubrick's Universe on the web. The closing date is March 31st, 2022. This episode, as ever, was produced by Stephen Rigg. I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, thanking you for tuning in. See you at the milk bar. Just don't interrupt the singing lady. Take care, everyone. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.